1: get into it man you know like I, you know i'm the man don't you can i count it off one two three four you're listening to the church politics podcast with michael ware and justin gibboni where you can get in-depth political analysis from a christian worldview transcend partisanship and political ideology with us as we seek true discipleship in the public square
0: this is the church politics podcast with michael weir and justin Gibney. brought to you by the Ant campaign justin it's great to be with you for another week
1: great to be back man especially this on this week when uh football college football really gets started man so i'm excited
0: yeah i'm excited i, I mean i don't know if you caught it but the buffalo bills are 3-0 and in the preseason uh so i think uh you know i think that that forebodes some, some good things. Although usually when you <laughs> use the word forebode, it, it isn't good, but, uh-huh. but I think, I think it's going to be good.
1: Uh, <laughs> hey man, I'm, I'm not going to steal your joy. Whatever you get yeah. from preseason, man, take it and, 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 and live it up, bro. <laughs>
0: That's right. Well, uh, we'll, we'll have to see how it how it shakes out, but yeah, I'm, I'm excited. You know, I've never, uh, I mean, you played college football, uh, and I know you, you stick with Vandy, uh, you know, I'm from the Northeast where college football isn't such a big thing. I have a hard time, uh, staying up with the, I don't have a team affiliation and because the players, you know, most of them only start for a year or two. Uh, if that it's hard to, hard for me to, to track it. But, uh, ever since you and I started doing this podcast, I, I do track Vandy. I do track SEC a little bit more than I used to, and uh, and it will be good to have have something to turn on on Saturday.
1: Yeah, no, that's good to hear, man. Uh, the, the first game was, I think, Florida and Miami played the first game. I have a good friend who is a huge Florida fan, and so it was a good time for me to, to kind of apply my sports tribalism theorem. Uh, part that's of right. that sports tribalism theorem is that it's OK to hate a team just because somebody, you know, likes them. All right. So tearing down a team, tearing down somebody else's team just because you don't want them to have the joy of feeling like their team is better than yours is is just fine. Uh, whereas I think hating just being a hater or, or a troll is terrible when it comes to politics and culture. I think it is perfect for sports. And that's what sports is for. And I, I did. Let me tell you, I did a really good job of trolling and just hating on uh, Florida, who ended up pulling it out, but gave me enough. Uh, to talk about to where I could uh, kind of get in his head a little bit.
0: That's good. That's good. Well, it, it'll be it'll be a long season for your friends. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I can only hope so.
0: Yeah, that's right. Well, we have a lot to talk about uh, this week, some really interesting topics. And let's get started. Uh, you know, it was kind of a tale of two G7s. Uh, you you follow President Trump's Twitter and He's making deals with uh, Japan. Trade deals with Japan. Uh, 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 Global leaders are telling him that America is doing great. They just don't understand why the press hates Trump so much. Uh, And so, you know, the the White House feeds were all all of this is going fantastic. The reporting uh, was was not so hot. Uh, uh, The reporting seems to suggest that the g seven uh, leaders minus Trump were kind of moving on without him. There was a climate change meeting that Trump skipped that went on uh, uh, ahead now folks might remember there was a uh, near the tail end of the Obama administration. Uh, President Obama actually busted his way into a climate change meeting. President Trump is skipping uh, climate change meetings with global leaders, which which shows the you know the difference in in administrations. Uh, and then we also, you know, there was just some odd reporting that came out of this G seven. Uh, Axios reported that that uh, that Trump suggested that. Uh, uh, or at least during the week that Trump suggested with uh, some of his uh, homeland security officials that uh, we should drop a nuke in the middle of a hurricane before it hits the shore and that would disrupt it. There was reporting that that the White House pushes back on, but reporting that suggested that Trump was pushing for uh, for Russia to be accepted back into the into the G seven to make it the G eight again, um, and again, just so so folks have context, the 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 G seven is uh, a a meeting of uh, uh, the world's developed economies uh, of the most developed economies, and so these are um, this is. Uh, a really critical, convening, critical summit. They discussed a a number of issues, including the Amazon, which we'll get to in the next segment. Uh, But this was another moment, Justin, for Donald Trump on the global stage. The White House is sending a positive message. Some of the reporting is undermining it, which seems to only give Trump the ability to to call out fake media and that kind of thing. But what what stuck out to you about uh, the White House's engagement in the G7 and any you know, deliverables that came out. I think it will be interesting to see if if this this trade deal with Japan comes to fruition. But there was there was so much going on here.
1: Yeah. Uh, One of the things that stuck out to me in the coverage that I've kind of read up on was just a lack of a clear message from the administration. Um, Mm -hmm. I guess I'm I'm not sure that would surprise anybody. Uh, President Trump seems to have Very little understanding of the concept that a leader is supposed to create a sense of direction, uh, a sense of stability. I think, you know, if you want to show that you're a leader, going to G7 and showing leadership among other leaders could be very helpful. Um, But his G7 uh, interactions were really marked by double talk from what I could tell and and confusion. Mm. I think a solid leader would have done what some of the things that I think uh, Obama did in these instances would have seen G seven as an opportunity to cast vision and to relay a believable sense of confidence to the global market at a time when that's what's needed. Right. Um, and so whether it is uh, because of a lack of preparation, a lack of discipline or both, the president has really been unable to be that kind of leader. Um, he called kind of being all over the place i think he called it one of his negotiation tactics uh, and I, and i have been part of negotiations where people just try to cause chaos chaos and then eventually get what they want but he's the president uh and the world is watching he's not just a ceo of some company uh in the middle of a private negotiation the dynamics there are different and his responsibilities uh to his own country and to uh the world that is watching are different uh, and so skipping out on those sessions on climate change could be strategic, uh, but it, it it just, it looks adolescent, right? It, it just, it just doesn't look good. And I think there's a better way to handle it. Uh, complimenting uh, North Korea's Kim Jong-un. Uh, he just, again, seemed to be all over the place. and I, And I think that's an opportunity to come forward with a different me- message, even if you disagree with some of the people at the table. So my argument isn't that he needs to agree with everything that was said, but I think there's a better and more responsible way to go about it to make sure that you're lifting the conversation up instead of kind of dragging it along in the dirt. Now, one of the comments that he made was that he is an environmentalist, which I think uh, surprised a lot of people that he would call himself that. I, I don't think uh, there are many others that probably would not consider him an environmentalist based on some of the things this administration has done regarding deregulating, you know, some of the, 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 the things that are going on uh, in the environment. But he went on to say that, uh, yes, I'm an environmentalist, but that he's not willing to sacrifice the country's economic success to protect the environment. Um, and I think, you know, obviously, he's not a credible messenger for this message because of, again, some of the things the administration has done in far, as far as deregulation and just the lack of. It's hard to tell that he's even well versed in the subject. Right. Uh, but I do think coming from another Messenger, there it, it does highlight the legitimate tension between economic growth, uh, industry protecting uh, the pockets of kind of like the middle class and working class versus environmental protection. So, ideally, I think what we're all looking for, all of us at least that care about protecting the environment, ideally, protecting the environment and protecting industry and in the pockets of everyday people, those things aren't in conflict. I think in reality, that's not always the case. And this is the tension that I think we really have to start dealing with as we go about our environmental policy. And really, the French president, Macron, should know this very well. Uh, we've talked already about the yellow vest protests and, and those protests were in in or at least in part because of environmental policies that were so burdensome for people who lived outside of the cities uh, that he really had to roll some of that stuff back because it was just too much. You know, raising gas prices to the to the point where people could not get to work or take basic errands to get their kids to school and things like that, it wasn't a policy that was thought through because the the very good goal of protecting the environment came into conflict with something else that dealt more closely with certain people and more directly with certain people. So I think just in that vein, this kind of highlights and that comment highlights in a way, even though if, if it's the wrong messenger. It highlights that I think environmentalists can do a better job of acknowledging that tension when they make their case about protecting the environment. Because I think there's a lot of people that want to be with them. But when you either ignore that tension or don't or, 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 or don't really come up with a clear plan to deal with that tension, I think it hurts you. So I think along with not being so hyperbolic sometimes. Uh, I think they have to understand that before people just let you enact some of these far reaching policies like the Green New Deal and all that, that you're going to have to um, that. And these these policies, the policies actually that are going to have a negative impact on some industries. And I think we all admit that that could happen and sometimes might need to happen. And that could hurt the economic status of some Americans before people are going to say, yeah, go ahead and, and run with that. You have to persuade them that your solutions are actually going to work. And provide opportunities that aren't just kind of pipe dreams with these infinite price tags. So just because people question those policies or see that tension doesn't mean that there are they aren't for the environment, that they don't care about the environment. They simply might want they simply might think that the measures don't work. And therefore, it isn't worth the pain that's being inflicted. And so, I think for that conversation to get better, we do need to to kind of step into that tension and deal with the tension in a better way. Yeah,
0: I mean, right. I think it's I think it's complex. You, you had the situation uh, in in Paris and in France, and that was, like you said, you know, policies that really hit people's you know pocketbooks directly. I, I, I think in, in the American context. Uh, too often uh, the argument about sort of uh, economic pains as a result of environmental policies is sometimes used as a trump card against any environmental protection right like oh you know this is gonna um, you know if we preserve this land then uh, you know it's a zero-sum game the businesses can't can't go there and how is that going to affect the economy or uh, often it's you know big interest it's it's oil it's it's gas that um, that are uh, putting up ads on the air that this is about sort of broad economic interest when really they're just trying to protect their own and I think with our you know with our next topic we're going to see you know some of the dangers that there are economic costs and costs that hit people's pocketbooks to ignoring environmental protection right the, i mean we're seeing the agricultural impacts and impacts on farmers of not dealing with the environment probably not in in the way that we should so i, I agree I, I do think the environmental movement has has gotten better over the years i mean you look at like the 60s and 70s uh when It was, you know, like Woodstock, you know, kind of like, you know, peacenik kind of stuff. And we've now seen that sort of uh, 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 leading organizations in the environmental movement talk about, you know, what a green economy looks like and how efforts to improve the environment can actually sync up with economic development. I don't think the message is perfect, but it is it is light years from where uh, from where the environmentalist uh, movement was, you know, 40 years ago, uh, and there's you know still progress to be made on that front.
1: Yeah, and no, I would agree, and, and and my statement's not to say that uh, the only consideration sh- should be economic, or that when people bring up that consideration that they're actually being uh, honest. Uh, sometimes we <laughs> do need to question yeah. the veracity of what people are doing because it is it's not the balance that it's supposed to be. But I think on both sides to acknowledge that tension in a real way. So I think that comment brought up the tension. And I think the more that we acknowledge it in a real way and say, well, OK, these you know, some of these things do inflict pain. So some of the things in the Green New Deal or even when you had Hillary Clinton during the campaign tell cold country that she's putting them out of business. Well, that inflicts yeah, right. pain, right? Sure. Is, yeah. Are there viable solutions that are going to make up for that? Um, and if those yeah. aren't there, you be you begin to see why so why a lot of people who would be on on team and you know environmentalism aren't quite there yet, and it's not because they they don't care or don't want to take some very serious uh, steps in that direction. Yeah, that's good. Well, when we get back, we're going to talk about
0: what's happening in the Amazon, uh, and uh, we're going to talk about B- Bernie Sanders' plan for the media. Uh, this is the Church Politics Podcast. We're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And, and just in, in the last segment, we discussed the G7. One topic that was on the table uh, at at the G7 uh, in a kind of emergency fashion was the forest fires in, in the Amazon, which have been all over the news for a good reason. It's a very significant uh, development and it speaks to a lot of the environmental conversation that we've been having. Now, it's a, it's a complicated story. Uh, I, part of what I did in preparation for this podcast was I just wanted to see, you know, is this something that people have been talking about before the crisis happened? You, you know, I think it's one thing for, uh, for, for folks to uh, when a disaster sort of strikes to then point to environmental factors. Uh, But another thing for sort of warning signs to be thrown up um, and, and, you know, for inadequate action to take place and then for a disaster, like what we're seeing unfold. And, you know, even if they're able to to stop the, uh, the forest fire and, and, uh, and to stem it, it's still going to be a, the disaster. There's still real, real loss that's taken place, and I mean, just in. Uh, I'm not an environmental scientist. I'm not sort of deeply read in the space. Just in sort of a, a search last night, I found uh, journal articles on the the threat that climate change and deforestation. Hoses to the Amazon forest specifically. Uh, I found I didn't realize that the World Wildlife Federation has an entire page on the on climate change in the Amazon. I found New York Times op eds from uh, 2018 uh, on uh, the Amazon being on the brink, uh, and so it's just important for folks. I, I know that there's skepticism when something bad happens. Uh, and then it's sort of tied into environmental issues of the day. Uh, there's skepticism that comes in uh, and it's right to be skeptical uh, towards the news. But it, it's also, uh, you know, why you're a skepticism to lead you to undervalue things that should be valued. So um, we know that the Amazon uh, the, uh, uh, that the Amazon rainforest has been uh, dealing with these fires is on. Uh, again, sort of the brink of, uh, it's. if these fires aren't stemmed, uh, they could uh, uh, sort of irreversibly harm one of the greatest natural resources on the face of the planet. Uh, It's important to note, the fires were not caused by climate change. Most of these uh, most of the fires, uh, most fires like this, although there are exceptions, like some of what we saw um, in in California and, and and other, but but often these fires are but are caused by humans. <laughs> so sometimes it's you know camp camping, sometimes it's uh, 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 you know uh, uh, work that's going on in the forest, and, and there's a sort of human inaction. What what does seem to be clear is a combination of uh, the Brazilian uh, president's deforestation policy uh, and the conditions that have been sort of set by climate change. So more arid trees that um, that uh, that allow uh, that allow fires to perhaps uh, spread uh, in a more effective and damaging way. And. Um, on the front end, climate change has been, has been a, a contributor to this, to, to this disaster. And then environmental scientists, uh, are, are suggesting that a potential back end effect is that the Amazon, uh, forest is one of the sort of, uh, vital, sort of natural, uh, combatants against climate change. And so to, uh, basically, uh, uh, be uh, for, for the rainforest to be demolished like this, uh, means that burning trees. It, so, this is from a New York Times article burning trees pump more carbon into the atmosphere, uh, and also means that the trees are um, uh, unable to sort of be a uh, protective uh, protective agent. Um, and so there, there's a lot, it's a very complicated story. Neither just Justin nor i are <laughs> environmental scientists what's clear is that this is something we need to be uh, attentive to uh the g7 leaders were attentive they committed 20 million dollars now the brazilian president in part to defend uh his policies uh in part i think cuz 20 million probably uh wasn't Adequate, in my opinion, of what the G seven leaders should have should have committed. The the Brazilian president is apparently going to it's just been re- reported today is apparently going to reject that money. But the G seven leaders were attentive to it. Um, Justin, I know that's a big set in, but it's a it's a complicated a complicated issue. Um, I know that you have some interesting thoughts about how this is played out, about how the conversation has sort of happened and the and the way that people get information about uh, about incidents and and, uh, occurrences like this. Uh, What do you think we need to be doing uh, uh, in the Amazon? Do you think the global response has been adequate and do you think the
1: Brazilian response has been adequate? Honestly, um, I'm, I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, and, and let me know. Let me yeah. uh, tell you what I mean. Uh, usually my practice is to pick to pick subjects that I, I know something about and to take a few hours on each subject before the podcast to, to make sure that I'm up to where I can actually speak confidently on it. And I'm going to be honest, uh, the time that I took those few hours on, on this particular subject combined with what I already knew about the subject just wasn't sufficient. Uh, to get to a point where I could talk about this issue confidently. And I say that to say I never on this podcast, I never want to give you guys information that I haven't thought through or that I don't feel comfortable with. Um, And so I we want to just be honest about that conversation. I'm not com- exactly sure um what should happen or if the response has been sufficient. There have been a lot of eyes <laughs> on it. I, I've saw I, yeah. I've seen it uh, talked about quite a bit. Uh, But I'm still trying to think through that. I I don't think it hurts to have as much conversation about it as possible. We have to make sure that on this very serious issue. So what I do know is this is a very serious issue when you're talking about deforestation. It's nothing that anybody should just look past and say, um, oh, well, doesn't seem like a big deal. Not happened to me next door. I don't care about it. That's what I do. know. I feel like that's the wrong response. But we have to make sure in talking about serious issues like this. That we don't lose credibility by not being accurate, because what happens and, you know, this is why I do, Michael, we're so divided that one side will take this issue and run with it. And because they were inaccurate, accurate, the other side will take it and say, oh, we don't have to pay attention to it at all. So you get two, you get two groups talking about an important issue and with two different realities. Right. And I think one way to fight against that is watching what we tweet and what we retweet about these important issues and making sure that when we speak on it, that we actually know what we're talking about. And and here's what I mean. Um, Initially, last week in in my conversations with people, a lot of people thought that this was mostly caused by climate change. Mm. Um, And that just didn't seem to be true. And you saw a lot of tweets from entertainers and everybody else saying or suggesting that it was caused primarily by climate change that wasn't wasn't true my understanding and michael mentioned it uh even environmentalists in brazil say that a lot of them say that these types of fires are usually man made right a- almost never are they re- the result of natural causes does that mean that this doesn't matter no but it does mean that we should be accurate and, and know what the source is right something else that happened that was disappointing is uh, President Macron again from France? Uh, Madonna, Leonardo DiCap- DiCaprio, and others were apparently t- tweeting out videos of the fire that weren't actually this fire, right? Some of these videos that that, w- that were sent out were twenty and thirty years old. Um, others were in South uh, Brazil, and so it had nothing to do with with the Amazon. And it got so bad that I guess CNN and the New York Times had to debunk those those videos, right? Uh, Again, does this mean that we shouldn't care about it? No. But it means that you can hurt your cause when you don't give people accurate information and when somebody has to call that out. Right. Uh, There's other conversations just about how, you know, the Amazon is a huge producer. It produces about 20 percent of the Earth's oxygen. But some scientists are saying and there seems to be some flux here. Well, that it uses up about 20 percent, too, so that it's a wash. These things I don't have the answer for you on. Uh, But what what I'm saying is watch what you tweet, watch what you say, because what we do know is the environmental, the environment is something that we feel we should take care of as Christians. We should be good stewards of what goes on in the environment. And if we care about issues, we want to make sure that the right information is out there so we can maintain credibility in order to approach it in the right way. And so. When I you know, when I kept reading, I got one view when I was reading some articles. I got a whole nother view in this article that I read in Forbes magazine, uh, which was entitled uh, why everything uh, they say about the Amazon, including that it's the lungs of the world is wrong. Do I know that this do do I know that this article is bad? I don't. Um, And so I read articles that were saying very different things about what's going on in Brazil, what I could take away from it. And what I think others should take away from it is I need to do more research about, about this particular issue, uh, is that I need to seek more sources. And, and, and you know, Michael made a good point. He knows that this is something that's been talked about for a while. It does seem like the president of Brazil, his deforestation policies could be encouraging some of this, the the, the burning of the forest that we're seeing going on here. What a lot of people are saying is that, OK, when you have a forest that you can't really touch, this is land that's not productive, that could be productive. So from his position, he's like, I want this land to be pr- more productive. If we put soy farms Farm on guy. this land, I can get more money out of it. Well, here comes that tension yep. again. Right. That tension between industry and the economy and the environment, uh, which way they should go. I'm not sure. It does seem like he's being somewhat reckless. With these deforestation policies. That's that's what it seems like to me. Again, I can't give you a definitive answer on that. Uh, but let's do more research. Maybe it's even something that me and Michael can bring an environmentalist or two onto the show to have this conversation in a real way. But what I didn't want to do today is make some strident comments that I couldn't back up. And I, and I hope uh, folks appreciate, you know, that me and Michael do want to make sure that we're giving you information that is constructive, that's helpful and that we've been able to think through all the way. And this was a subject as I read more and more about it that I was like, well, let me let me you know put some of the issues out there. Uh, but but not go too far and and kind of make and coming to conclusions.
0: Yeah, and you know it's just such an important. Th- think about how much better our political discourse would be if folks were willing to just say, like, I don't know, I, I I need to read up more on this. I need to defer to people who do know uh, what what they're talking about. Uh, and unfortunately, we have this environment where folks feel like they have to have a definitive, strident opinion on everything, which just is impossible. How are you going to know about the the intricacies of the Amazon rainforest and also uh, the, the way that uh, gosh, what else have we talked about on this on this episode? Well, <laughs> uh, the, the reasons why dropping a nuke into a center of a hurricane right. won't won't work <laughs> quite the way that President Trump intended, or just the range of issues that politics uh, politics alone touches. Now that doesn't even get into like folks feeling like they need to have an opinion on uh, things that are outside of of policy making. And so, yeah, I think it's. Uh, I think it's critical. I I I appreciate that. Uh we have a responsibility to engage. We don't have a responsibility to know everything uh all the time, and certainly don't have a responsibility to pretend like we know everything all the time. So uh we just urge folks to pay attention to particularly uh I- environmental groups and experts that are paying attention and, and try to scan those broadly. And then, you know, there are uh, Christian environmental groups that uh, that do critical work. So uh, check out Tier Fund, the work of Tier Fund, a wonderful organization. Uh, here on the domestic context, you could look at the work of the, environmental, uh, the Evangelical Environmental Network. You could look at the work of Pastor Gerald Durley uh, in, in Atlanta, who uh, is an environmental uh, leader. You could look at uh, you could look at so many uh, sources and leaders, Catherine Hayhoe, who's a, uh, a climate scientist, uh, uh, evangelical out of uh, out of Canada. There are so many folks that are paying attention to these issues and haven't just started paying attention to them. Uh, and those are the kinds of folks that that I turn to uh, when stories like this pop up. Uh, Justin, anything to, to add before we move on to the next segment? No, I think that was solid. Good. All right. Well, uh, folks, when we get back, we're going to talk about Senator Bernie Sanders, a plan for uh, uh, for journalism and news media and his, uh, his plan to uh, fight back against what he sees as some of the excesses and uh, 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 centralization of power, we can say. We'll, we'll break it all down for you in the next segment. This is the Church Politics Podcast. We're back. This is the Church Politics Podcast. And on August 26th, Nick Senator Bernie Sanders did something that really exemplifies why he has a core following. Uh, And he did it in a way that exemplifies why he has a, a core following. And that is in the middle of a presidential campaign, after days of getting critiqued for invoking Jeff Bezos's business interests and how they might conflict with his ownership of the Washington Post. Uh, Bernie Sanders didn't back down. He didn't uh, really uh, equivocate. In some ways, he doubled down and he wrote an op-ed for uh, the CJR, the Columbia Journalism Review, with his plan for journalism. Uh, th- this is a really a docu- uh, an, an op-ed worth reading in full. I don't think we're going to be able to walk through uh, all of it here, but the 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 basic setup I'll give is that uh, Senator Sanders uh, sets up a journalism, real journalism, which which he uh, uh, is his phrase, real journalism, that is, uh, and then he quotes Joseph Pulitzer as saying that it reflects painstaking reporting that will, quote, fight for progress and reform, never tolerate injustice or corruption, and always fight demagogues. Uh, he goes on to uh, continue to quote Pulitzer, uh, uh, who wrote that uh, journalism must always oppose privileged classes and public pu- plunders, never lack sympathy with the poor, always remain devoted to the public welfare, never be satisfied with merely printing news always be drastically independent, never be afraid to attack wrong, whether by predatory plutocracy or predatory, t- or predatory poverty. This is the setup that Senator Sanders gives for what real journalism should be. And then goes on to list concerns about the transformations we've seen in journalism and in news media. Uh, he focuses particularly and we'll talk about why he does this, but he focuses particularly on mergers and, and what what he refers to as monopolistic control of news outlets uh, that has really grown and expanded. And, you know, without uh, without government action or a, a change in how the government approves these mergers, uh, seeks to only continue, he, uh, Bernie uh, puts on the table talk of a CBS Viacom merger that he says would would be disastrous. Now, when Bernie talks about solutions, uh, as some have pointed out, uh, you start to get the sense that uh, he, he's trying to address a problem that probably can't be fully uh, or even mostly addressed by government. Uh, so he, the main sort of big proposal is uh, an additional skepticism uh, uh, against, uh, mergers like CBS Viacom, like some of the mergers we've seen just over the last five, 10 years. Bernie says this is to prevent, uh, especially multi-level ownership of media. So he puts out the example that, uh, technically you could have one owner of like two local TV stations, a local newspaper, and like a radio station, and effectively have the news conversation dominated by one owner. And he says that that's a, a real threat to, to journalism. Uh, he also lists a couple of other proposals he wants to uh, help promote the unionization among media employees. And we've seen him speak out on behalf of uh, some of the union activity that's gone on uh, publications uh, like BuzzFeed and others. Uh, And there are a few other. He wants to tax Silicon Valley a bit more uh, to to sort of uh, disincentivize some of the uh, wrong that he sees going on in in the uh, journalism space. Uh, and he wants to more strictly enforce antitrust laws. There are a few other items. To me, Justin, um, again, I thought it was very interesting that he wrote this, that he wrote this in the middle of a presidential campaign, that it's published in a place like the Columbia Journalism Review. I think it's the kind of thing where his supporters will be like, wow, uh, S- Senator Sanders is is willing to you know stand up to corporate power, um, even if it's the, the very publications that he, he's going to, in part depend on to have a chance in this uh in this presidential campaign uh, I get, there will be others with a different view on that, but I think his supporters will be like this is this is Bernie being bernie uh not being not caring about perception not caring about uh sort of how things are going to play necessarily but seeing a a problem with corporate dominance and addressing it uh, what did you think of the uh, just in the the setup to his description of the problem, uh, one, and then two, uh,
1: the, the solutions that he presented. So I, I did see some boldness in this. And I think one of the things I, I generally appreciate about Bernie, although I disagree with him on some things and we'll talk about that, too. One of the things I generally appreciate about Bernie is I do think he stands for this. Right. So this doesn't come out of nowhere. Right. It's not like Bernie has been super buddy buddy with all these guys. And then one day he says, no, I'm going to come get them. When Bernie says something like this, I think we have reason to believe that this is what he's really been standing for. And so that's one of the things that I do appreciate, appreciate about Bernie when I see him take a bold stance and there's always politics and campaign stuff that goes into this. So I'm not saying it's the the motives are completely pure, but generally I give Bernie the benefit of the doubt when he puts his foot down like this, just because he's been doing stuff like this for a while. Um, Now, now there's all there always can be other things at play. You know, my situation with Bernie is I disagree with a lot of his economic policies Uh, while I think that his intent is good. And I think this plays into his what he thinks about economics. And so that's why I'm starting here. I think his intent is good because I, too, would like to see more people in college, more people with uh, better health care and so on. I just don't think that his plans are realistic. I don't think his plans to get there are realistic or always even healthy. Um, everything can't be, be free. Uh, while I think that a smart and active government can be very helpful, I don't think that I don't have as much faith in government as Bernie does. I, I'd like to depend more on families and, and uh, intermediate um, institutions. That said, getting back uh, to your question, I agree with a lot of what he said in here about the state of American j- journalism. Um, in this op-ed, I think he hits on some points that we need to think about a a little harder. Um, now to be clear, there are some very awesome principled, thorough journalists out there that do very good work. And I I think we've pointed out quite a few of those before. So never, never should you paint a whole industry as being, you know, um, easily paint a whole industry as being corrupt. And that's certainly not what I'm doing or we're doing on this show. Um, But we do have to understand that journalism and the free press is so important to democracy that we can't allow some of it to go down the road or down the path that it seems to be going. And so based on the case that he made, Michael, for for this, a couple of things stuck out to me when he talks about Facebook and Google controlling 60 percent of the digital advertising market. To a lot of people, that does almost seem like a monopoly. It's like 60 percent. Right. I mean, you, he, he pointed he points out a study by the uh, New Media Alliance that found that while newspaper revenues are declining, Google made four point seven billion dollars off of reporting that they didn't even pay for. That is that that is a problem. Um, he also goes into how large corporations, as you said, said, Michael, are consolidating all these small local newspapers. And then they're cutting so much of the staff. Uh, This is a this is a problem since 2008. I think twenty eight thousand employees who are working in these newsrooms have been fired, have been let go. Um, uh, More than fourteen hundred communities, more in more than fourteen hundred communities in the in America. They have lost these communities have lost their newspapers altogether. And this is the part that gets me. When you lose these local newspapers, there's going to be less reporting on corruption. There's going to be less reporting on healthcare. There's going to be less reporting on government transactions, which means people who might not have the best intentions will get away with more because you don't have these local newspapers who are checking into it. And that is very seriously problematic. And that's the thing that really resonated with me, because you kind of know that it's true. Right uh nobody wants to be around the gadfly when you're trying to get something done but that muckraker that journalist that's really digging into the to the issues is so needed by the community so they they can see what's going on so that everything can be transparent but when when they're owned by you know one conglomerate now they're reporting on stuff that as he said is just political gossip. And so we're getting all this stuff about Epstein. I'm not saying it shouldn't be reported, but should be should it be reported for 2 weeks and be the main conversation? I'm not sure that it should. Let let the uh, you know, criminal justice system do what they need to do instead of getting really uh, a lot more uh, deeply into some of these issues that are affecting people on a daily basis and more directly, especially when you're talking about local level conversations and local level conversations suffer when you don't have those local journalists and more local journal- journalists with the. Uh, with the people behind them to actually get their work done and move forward. So this does have an impact on the people. It has an impact on democracy. And I I think a lot of what Bernie's saying makes some sense. Uh, As far as his plan goes, uh, we'll we'll see what could happen if he got in office. I think, you know, he would try to do some things with the uh, Federal uh, Federal Communications Commission and so on. It's a big job. But somebody has to step in, whether you're talking about the attorney general or the F- Federal Trade Commission, and, 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 and tell us, at least give us a better vision of what you're trying to do with these antitrust laws. Because as they apply to Silicon Valley, as they apply to these other folks, a lot of people just aren't seeing the activity and not understanding why the Googles or the Facebooks wouldn't kind of be seen as monopolies. And that needs to be explained. Uh, journalism can help with that. But when journalism is being cut off, we really suffer from a lack of information.
0: Yeah, I think those are good points. I like I said, you know, I think this is this is one of those uh, Bernie's willingness to go sort of directly into the fray and directly challenge power in this way is one of the reasons that he uh he he there are people who who really like him and are attracted to him. I'll also say, you know, there is an analog to some of the uh, some of the rhetoric that's in this. Now, uh, our current president certainly isn't uh, as uh, articulate in his diagnosis, but others have pointed out, you know, that, that Bernie has at times, especially in his critiques of Jeff Bezos kind of uh, gotten into uh, uh, territory that that seems to be like challenging the the, the refs uh, and maybe they need challenging but it's just it's just important to see that how, how Bernie's critique that media might have incentives uh, that that lead it to not report as uh, as fairly as they otherwise might but sort of Republican critiques and of course Donald Trump is uh a representative of both the most aggressive and probably the the least articulate and, and thought and thought through of these these critiques but our republican critiques are challenges like uh you know a threat to the first amendment and anti-free press and you know i think that there's there's some there's some tension there uh, and it, it could be nuanced out we could we could dice it up uh, but it, it is it is an interesting. It's why we saw support some a segment of. I think it's part of the reason why we saw a segment of Bernie supporters um, ha- have some sympathy for for Trump on trade. Have some sympathy for Trump, even on these kinds of these kinds of issues, his sort of more. Um, Sort of more aggressive, sort of challenging posture. That even if the the core of the substance is different, uh, the, the the sort of the presentation of it has some similarities. I, I, so I I just think I just think it's interesting. I, I didn't head into this podcast expected to compare Birdie Birdie and Trump, but it has been a very interesting. Um, Thing To see, particularly, again, as we saw last week, Bernie's critique of of Bezos and some people start to say, hey, you know, this is getting really uh, uh, this is this is going to confuse people and might lead them to think that Donald Trump has a point, too.
1: It's an interesting conversation, but I, I do think at very least we need to say, when does this get dangerous? When does only a few companies owning all of all of media become problematic? So even if we don't, you know, even if we don't say, hey, it's the the sky is falling right now and it's all over this. An article like this is important to say, well, when 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 is that a problem? Right. Because surely at some point it becomes, you know, when you're talking about conflicts of interest and all that. Surely at some point it becomes a problem. I think we need to identify where that is at very least. And I I can't remember who said this quote, but they say it's always dangerous or, or never go against the people who buy ink by the gallon meaning going yeah. into the media is, is always a bad look. And so, and let, you know, it's hard for me to imagine that unless this was a, a real problem that he wouldn't, you know, that he that he would just do it uh, just to be doing it, just to take a shot. I, I think there are, you know, I think there are are issues that need to be worried about, and this is a conversation that needs to be had, but it can also go too far in that direction too, right? It can also go too far when you have... Uh, Trump saying, calling everything fake news and really, you know, saying that the media are, they're the enemy of the people and all this. That is when it goes through too far. And when we act like we don't have journalists who are really putting in a lot of work and have a lot of integrity and are really trying to help the people. Right. I mean, a lot of these folks aren't getting paid a lot of money, but they really put their lives and time into making sure um, that the people get the information they need. But I I think we should all be worried about the fact that you don't have as many local reporters and, and local journalists because of some of these mergers. You know, being in local government, you know, seeing how all that stuff works. You need those gadflies. You need those people who are raising questions And even small government transactions sometimes need to be questioned or people just need to know there is somebody that's going to be watching to keep them out of uh, bad situations and to protect the people. So something to be said here, I think at very least we can identify when this begins to. When this becomes problematic, even if you don't totally agree with uh, Bernie, when does it become problematic that we're really centralizing the ownership of all these media outlets to a a few folks? I think that could get uh, I think that could get tough for us and we need to watch out and at least call it to question.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we're way past problematic. Right. And and I think that's why you see this conversation. You know, there is the sort of Trump analog. But to go to a, a little more bit more on the serious policy proposal side. And there's been a lot of discussion about it and a lot of uh, debate. But, you know, you look at someone like Senator Josh Hawley, who rolled out some proposals of his own on regulating uh, social media and kind of Silicon Valley, you know, digital uh, social media companies. I mean, I I think the, the, the problem is clear. I think we have a We have an environment that, as especially as you have single owners of multiple outlets and multiple sort of niche niche outlets, the opportunity for deception, uh, the opportunity for sort of manipulating audiences, is through the roof. Uh, I I think what we're, uh, I think part of the challenge is just to what extent does our does our law, to what extent does the Constitution. as uh, as as it stands now you know allow the government to to step in and to what extent will this have to be will the changes that need to be made uh, have to come from uh from public pressure that is not sort of directly Political or policy oriented, and the, and the, like those are those are questions that I I don't have the the full answer to. I have a sense that there's a that there's a there's a limit <laughs> right now that would require, if not constitutional change, uh, a a change in a statutory change, a, additional power being given to the federal government that wouldn't just deal with mergers, but would um but would deal with a whole range of factors but but I'm not sure exactly where that where that line is uh as you alluded to Justin like I think we're we're going to find out because this is becoming a a bigger and bigger uh issue and problem I I do think one thing that we've suffered from is uh and it's not like there are a a a, a, a bunch of analogs across like BBC kind of stands uh, alone as uh, a reputable, publicly funded outlet, uh, news outlet that that is respected as a as a journalism source. Now, PBS does have some; it's just not the it's just not the sort of uh, doesn't have the convening power and doesn't have the ability to drive the news like like the BBC does, particularly in the UK. But as we know globally, and and I do I, I know that there's been a long-standing debate about whether. Uh, whether we've failed to deliver a, a, a vital public service uh, by by trying to establish a, a sort of publicly funded uh, independent uh, television uh, new news news source that could operate at the level of a of a BBC, and, and it, it, is that a better uh, better better
1: option than what we have now? All good questions and all th- all things we want you all to think about. But I, let me say this. Maybe this is a good place to 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 kind of end this. Support your local journalists. Right. In, in any way you can uh, support j- journalists in general. Sometimes that means paying a dollar or two, you know, every, every month or whatever to read their read the information they're putting out there. Believe me, do not underestimate. The importance of journalism in democracy. It is extremely important. Uh, I think it's essential. And so, do your best to, to help your local journalists, and so we can get uh, the right information out there and have some transparency. All right, folks. Well,
0: we've covered uh, a lot of ground, some tricky subjects uh, this this week, uh, but important to discuss. And uh, there will be, uh, of course, uh, you know, I think it's going to be as we get past Labor Day, uh, both on the policy side and obviously as we get deeper into the campaign, things are going to pick up politically. Vacation is almost over and we're almost going to be back to sort of a full-blown activity, uh, which, which will be more than what we've dealt with in, in this episode, believe it or not. So until next week, thank you for listening. This is The Church Politics Podcast. Have a blessed week. This, is a
1: groove. Tell me. With a
0: this episode was brought to you in part by Just These Guys, you know? A pastor and a psychologist team up to break down scripture and psychology, empowering you to transform by the renewing of your mind. Listen today at justtheseguys.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Just these guys, you know?